If you look at what's going on in the context, okay, so look at, look, go ahead and look at Mark chapter, chapter 4. And then look at 10 through 12. Okay, as soon as he was alone, his followers along with the 12 began asking him about the parables. Notice it's plural. So what happens is, is 1 through 10, Christ tells the parable of the sower and the soils. But then in verse 13, he gives the explanation of the parable of the sower and soils. Okay, so right in between that, sandwiched in the middle, you have this, you have Christ being asked about parables in the plural. And so this whole chapter is involving parables. So if you look at 26, the parable of the seed, verse 30, the parable of the mustard seed, um, and, and on and on. In fact, the rest of this, this, this gospel is going to be filled with parables. And so I think it's important before we get to the parables specifically that we actually look at what Christ intends for us to know about parables in general. Okay, and he tells us this in verse 10. So that's what we're going to look at today, verses 10 through 12. Okay, so let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray for illumination. We can do nothing at all that's of any worth without you. And so God, go before us now. Open your scriptures. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for these words. Help us, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read 10 through 12. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. And I have to admit, reading through the commentaries, you know, every week, you know, as far as sermon preparation, you you read it, you pray about it, you try to figure out, okay, what exactly is going on? And then I like to look in the original languages, kind of see what's going on there. Um, But then at some point, I start looking at the commentaries um, just to make sure I'm I'm on the same page. Because if you're not, you know, usually that's, that's not a good sign. But I have to admit, this... This it's, it's, It was an amazing event going through all the different commentaries and them trying to explain away what God is actually saying in verse 12 in some of the commentaries. Okay, so in verse 12, look at this. While seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. So there's this idea here where God is intentionally doing something to the people that are hearing so that they don't actually hear. And that is a hard thing to grasp, right? That is a very hard, why? Because we don't want to think of God in that way. And so people were trying to explain it away. It was amazing that those three verses were probably lengthier in the commentaries than like, you know, 15 or 16 verses altogether because they're trying to explain, okay, what exactly is going on here rather than, it's quite simple and we'll get there. Okay, so, but first of all, in verse 10, what we're seeing here is uh, three things, okay? So first of all, we're going to see that parables separate the insiders from the outsiders. The idea of Insider and outsider. We saw last week, remember when Christ is there with his disciples on the inside and his mother and brothers, they're on the outside. And so we saw that idea that in Christ, we are on the inside and yet everyone else is on the outside. So we're going to see that parables bring about a further separation of that. Number two, parables distinguish between spiritual sight and blindness. And so they kind of overlap, but parables do help us to distinguish between um, spiritual sight and blindness. And number three, parables are reserved for times of judgment. And we'll look at that last, okay? So first of all, what's a parable? Now, we, I'm assuming we all kind of have some understanding of a parable. It usually involves agriculture or animals or inanimate objects like pearls and treasure. Um, so we've heard of these things and we've heard of parables, but what exactly a parable is meant to do, I think, is a little confusing 
or it can be, right? So I think that's why this is so important. So look at verse 10, okay? So Christ is alone except for what? So he's away from the crowd. That's all that means in verse 10. When it says he was alone, it doesn't mean he's by himself like he'll, he'll be in other times when he's praying. But he's alone in the sense of, remember, every time he goes somewhere, usually everyone's trying to be around him. Last time we saw him, he couldn't even eat a meal because so many people were around him and pressing him and crowding him. Well, here he's actually alone, but he's with his followers. Now, who are his followers? The 12 disciples? No, because look at the next phrase, his followers along with the 12. Okay, so now you have the 12 and the rest of his followers. So that tells us right there, it's not just the 12 who are his disciples. It's a bigger group than the 12, although the 12 are, are, are inside in a more sincere or uh, a more intimate way, I guess you could say. Here's the thing. They're all around him. No one else is around him. And so what happens next is what they say. Notice who it is who's asking. Okay, These disciples begin to ask him about the parables. Why is that important? Well, that's important because, number one, if everybody is hearing Christ. Now, remember what we've talked about a lot. Probably one of the main motives for people trying to hunt down Christ and see where he is is because he's doing things. He's healing people. He's giving people bread. And yet, there are the disciples who are also there seeing him do these things and, and seeing him or hearing him teach... And yet they're not quite satisfied just by the miracles, right? They're not quite, they're not saying, okay, we saw what we saw. We got healed and so we're leaving. They're not quite satisfied with that. They want to know more. And so they're there asking him these questions. They're hungry for more. They're not nominal Christians. They're not nominal followers in name only, in other words, right? They want to be around him. Remember when Christ called the disciples to him over here in chapter 3, um, in verse 14, it says that he appointed 12 so that they would be with him. And now you're saying that again, we we talked about how that is an aspect of all of us as Christians. There should be this mindset, this desire in us to want to be around Christ. Now we know Christ is in heaven. So how can we be around Christ? Well, Christ spiritually comes and strengthens us and speaks to us and encourages us and convicts us and all these different things spiritually through the word, through prayer, through the saints, through certain means like that. Okay, so we know that. These people are hungry for more. Um, The other people have obviously walked away somewhere. They're not there. But then the next part is this, okay? Look at verse 11. And this is how Christ responds when they say, okay, what's up with these parables? What's going on here? Verse 11. And he was saying to them, you notice it's in the continuous sense. So it's not just a one-time deal. He was saying to them, in other words, he's explaining this over and over again. He says, to you has been given the mystery of of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. Okay, now ask ourselves this. In the church history class, we've been talking about a group of, um, it was a religious sect in these days that were called Gnostics. Okay, now Gnostics, the word Gnosis means knowledge. So the Gnostics were teaching that they had some kind of special or secret knowledge that only the initiate, those who are inside, can know about. And in fact, if anybody... If anybody shared that in for that secret knowledge with anyone on the outside, then the consequences for those who are sharing those things, if you were a Gnostic and you went to someone else and you're telling them the secrets of what the Gnostics are up to, what we as Gnostics do, then, then you could actually lose your life. The Gnostics could actually put you to death. So it's very important that you keep the secrets to yourself. Okay, now with Christianity and with the gospel and with what Christ is doing, it's the complete opposite. Okay, because when, when we have the word mystery here, we have to realize this is more like um, this is more like a secret that has been revealed. 
a secret that's been divulged. So in other words, if you think about this word, if you ever read through the, through the New Testament, and the, especially the letters of Paul, um, for instance, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. You see this idea of mystery over and over and over again. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1, look at verses 9 and 10. Look at a few places here. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Okay, he made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with the view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now that's important to tie those two things together, as we'll see in the last verse. The idea of predestination and this idea that um, this idea of the mystery being revealed to us. Okay, so there's a mystery. Look at 1 Corinthians. So one book or two books to your left. If you're in the scriptures, go to your left. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, let's start in verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of, our, none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So that, that right there tells us what the mystery is. Think about it. So what Paul is saying here is the reason why they crucified Christ was because they didn't understand who Christ was. They didn't understand the gospel. So what's the mystery? The mystery is the gospel. The mystery is how it was that God in his, in his providence was going to do something so that we as sinners could be reconciled to a God who is holy and righteous and good, even though we are evil and, and profane and, and, and blasphemous and all these different things. How can God save a people like us? That's a mystery. Well, the mystery is revealed. The mystery comes to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. And how can you know that? How do you know? So in other words, think it because there's a real pastoral situation here going on with these Christians. There's a, there's a problem here that they're having. And there's a problem that the, the, the people in the, uh, the people that are receiving this gospel of Mark in Rome, they have a big problem. What's their problem? My friends are being thrown into the arena and being put to death by lions. My friends are being burnt at a stake after they're covered in pitch and set on fire by Nero. My friends are being rounded up, my children, my parents, everybody around me who names the name of Christ, they're being rounded up and thrown into jail. If I don't pinch, you know, incense to Caesar, remember last week I, I kind of briefly mentioned that, um, you know, every now and then we most definitely are going to bring up politics because the Bible does. You know, the, the phrase Jesus Christ is Lord is a political statement. For the Roman Christians to say Jesus Christ is Lord, they would lose their life. Why? Because what they're doing is they're, they're saying Caesar is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what the, what the problem that they're having is this. They're saying, all right, Christ, I, I get that you know, we're supposed to follow you. I get that, right? But how is it or why is it that everyone around us is, is being killed, slaughtered because of Christ? How can we answer that question? That's what Christ is addressing here. And that's in a sense why, why he brings this up and why Paul is saying this and why other writers, this is in Colossians, it's another place in the New Testament. The reason why this is so important is because, look at verse, 
um, chapter, uh, look at verse 11 of chapter 4 of Mark. Okay, going back to Mark. Verse 11. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. So you have a contrast between those who are you, the Christians, those who are outside, but look what he says. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. You know what they're asking Christ? They're saying, Christ, how come we, we get it, we believe it, but they don't believe it? So if you look at the parable of the sower, the one we'll talk about next week, God willing. The parable of the sower, there's four soils. Three of them are bad soil. The fourth is a good soil. The sower goes out, he casts the seed on the soils, and three of the soils are bad, as we'll look at next week. And so what he's doing is he's explaining why it is that three of the soils are bad, and yet the fourth soil is good soil. What is the difference? What's the difference? Because they're looking at it and they're saying, you know, we go out, we share the gospel, we tell others about Christ, and we're turning around and being persecuted. So how do you explain this? What Christ is doing is saying, you know how, you know what makes you different from everyone else? You know what makes you different from unbelievers? To you has been given the understanding of the truth of the gospel. It's not just that you alone have heard the gospel. A lot of people have heard the gospel. You, have, you yourselves have shared the gospel with a lot of people that don't believe it. You have friends that are not believers and you're a believer. How do you explain these things? How do you explain it? It's because God has given you wisdom of the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now think about how, think about how, how humbling on the one hand this is, but this is also very troubling for a lot of people. Because why? Because they're saying, wait a minute. It doesn't seem right that God has given this to me, but I know, I know Bob over here, and Bob is still a, a, a pagan, and he's still a, a, a heathen and everything else. So how come he gave it to me, but not Bob? Well, I have no idea, right? But it's like what Paul says in Romans 9. Does that make God unjust? By no means. Why? Because if God was truly just, Bob and both, both of us would be cast into hell. Everybody would be cast into hell. Everybody. But what is grace is God coming and actually revealing these things to some people. But again, it's not like it's not like God is unjust. Why? Because those who God reveals these things to, Christ has died for their sins. You have to remember that. Right? So it's not like I'm going to heaven because, hey, I'm not as bad as Bob. No, I'm going to heaven because Christ paid for my sins. He wiped the slate clean in, in the sense of my sins. He shed his blood for my sins, like we saw in Ezekiel. He, he, his, his, his blood was sprinkled upon me, and it made me clean. So here's what we have, though. Check this out, okay? So it's been given to us. Now, do we see this anywhere else in the Scriptures? Look at Mark or Matthew chapter 16. And again, just ask yourself, just ask yourself, okay? What does the Bible say? I'm telling you. You know, these commentators who know way more about biblical languages and certain cultures than I will ever even get close to knowing. They were doing hula hoops and jump rope and everything they could with the text to try to get around the fact that God chooses some and passes over others. He reveals things to some and he doesn't reveal things to others. And you're like, man, I don't like that, right? Well, I didn't write the Bible. <laughs> this is not invented today. I, it's not like this is the first. This is, look at this, okay? Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. And Jesus said to him, remember, let's start in uh, verse 16. So Christ is saying, who, who do you, who, who's everybody saying I am? They're saying, well, this guy, you know, some say John, some say Jeremiah. Christ says in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because you're smarter than everybody else. You have more wisdom than all your friends, and that's why you know these things. It's not what he says, is it? He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's how you know this. My Father who is in heaven has revealed it to you. That's why you're blessed. That's why you're blessed. See, if you're in Christ today, you're blessed because God in his mercy has revealed these things to you. And he hasn't revealed these things to the other guy. Now, we hope he does. And we'll talk about that at the end as far as this is. This can be quite a fluid situation as far as who's on the inside, who's on the outside. Okay. The other place to look is let's stay in Matthew. Go to Matthew 11. And then look at 25. And this is right after Christ is casting these these woes and these judgments on these cities because they have not believed in him. And he says in verse 25, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. What things? The things of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. You notice how Christ responds to this? Christ doesn't try to explain it away. He doesn't try to make excuses for God. He says, God, I thank you. I praise you for doing this, for working in this way. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son. And check this out. And anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. Right? That's about as clear and blatant as it gets. So how do you have these other groups that are like, this does not mean what I just read. It does mean what you just read. You just have trouble with it. Why? Because you're trying to make excuses for God to try to protect him. You don't have to protect God. God can call whoever he wants to call. God can save whoever he wants to save. That's his priority. That's his prerogative, not ours. That's the purpose of the parables. Okay, the last place I want to look is uh, actually two more places. Look at Luke 24, Matthew, Mark, Luke 24, 13 through 35. 24, 13 through 35. This is the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? Christ is right in their midst and they're walking with them. Verse 13, behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. Christ has just been crucified. They don't know that he's been raised from the dead yet. All they know is that he's been crucified. So they're talking about it. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing them. Notice what it says. Their eyes were prevented. By who? By God. And how do I know that? Because down here, when they start talking to him, Christ is is telling them about himself from the scriptures. Um, Look at verse 20. Let's see. Let's go down to... Okay, look at 28. So, you know, they discuss things on the way and then they reach this village and then they go in to eat. Verse 28, and they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving to them, giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They don't know who he is. Then all of a sudden their eyes are open. And then lastly, Acts chapter 9, actually we'll save this one for sake of time, but it's Paul's conversion. Okay, what is Paul doing before he's Paul? His name is Saul. He's on the way to Damascus to persecute Christians, round him up in jail, uh, round him up, throw him in jail, perhaps even 
kill them like they did with Stephen. He's on his way. Christ shows up out of nowhere. Boom. He's converted. And then it says that something like scales fell out of his eyes. And all of a sudden he realized what the truth was. This, these are all inside glances as far as how God works in human beings who go from hating God and being at enmity with God to all of a sudden now they love God. They desire God. They hate their sin. How do you explain that? That is a supernatural work of grace. That's why God alone gets all the glory. I'm not, you know how, I mean, think about the other, the, the opposite view. You know, it's like, hey, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian because I was smarter than Bob. I knew more than Bob. I was more pious than Bob. And when I heard the gospel, unlike Bob, you know, actually I was smart enough to believe it. Poor Bob, he's, he's still kind of dumb, you know, spiritually. He's just not, not as smart as me. He's not as good as me, right? That's crazy. That's insane. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. The only way that anybody can be converted is if God reveals these things to them. Remember Lydia, seller of fabric. What happened? God opens her her mind to understand these things, right? That is the way God works. Now, let's go back to Mark chapter 4 and let's let's, uh, continue looking at this, okay? So it's something that's been given. That's what Christ says. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. The mystery being the gospel. To you has been given. Why is this necessary? Because the gospel is paradoxical. How can you go to somebody and say, listen, I got something to tell you. The God of the universe who is spirit took on flesh... And came and dwelt on the earth that he himself made, on the ground that he himself made, the ground that he himself was holding together. God did that. Right? No. You say, no, of course, I I can't believe that. In fact, there was a guy last week after church, he called us, it was a wrong number, and then he said, oh, this is a church? And I said, yeah. He says, well, in that case, let me ask you some questions. And he started asking me questions. This guy's up in Minnesota somewhere, and he's saying, and we're talking about the gospel and things, and he's saying, you know, he, he, he goes, do you know how many galaxies there are? And I was like, I don't know, a couple billion maybe? He said, no, trillions, trillions of galaxies. And you're telling me that God created this earth for human beings so that he could come and reveal himself to them? That's why he made all these galaxies? I said, yeah. He said, I can't believe that. You know, he's just like, that's, I, I can't comprehend that. I, I don't believe it. Of course you don't believe it. I didn't believe it either. You can't believe it, right? You're telling me that God took on flesh and dwelt among us in the person of a man? Yeah, I can't believe that. No, you, of course you can't believe that. <laughs> It's spiritual, man. It's a miracle. It's, it's a miracle beyond all miracles. Um, what else are some, some, some paradoxes? Paradoxes are not contradictions. But these things, paradoxes are hard, things that are hard to fathom. So, um, I'll tell you what's something that's, that's, and this guy had the same, this guy had a real problem with the fact that God would actually die for human beings. Why would God care about us? That's what was his question. Why would God care about us? That's, that is the question, right? And that's what I kept telling him. It's like, you're asking the right question. Why would he do this? Why would he have any regard for humans? But you know who asked that question? The psalmist. You have made us a little lower than the angels. Who is man? Who are we that you would actually do all these things for us? That you would actually take on flesh to come and die for us? That's why these things are spiritually revealed. That's why when Paul goes to Athens and they're talking to Paul and Paul's telling them about the, you know, this, this, this carpenter from Nazareth who was a Jew. And for the Greeks, man, the Jews were like the scum of the earth. The carpenters were the scum of the earth because for a Greek, man, anybody who's like of the lower class who works with their hands for the Greeks, they're, they're, they're like the scum of the earth. And isn't it nice that Christ has flipped that on its head and says, it doesn't matter what you do for a living. If you're doing it for Christ, you're doing it to the glory of God. Christ is glorified by that. 
So Paul goes to Athens and he's saying, yeah, so there's a, Greek, or there's a Jewish guy who works with his hands and he's God. Now for a Greek hearing that, they're saying, wait a minute, why would God, they also think the flesh is reprehensible. So why would God take on flesh, right? That would be the worst thing that God would ever do. He would never even fathom taking on flesh because the flesh is evil. So now you're telling me he's a man, he's a carpenter, and he's a Jew? And you're telling me this guy's God, and now you're telling me he, he died, and, and yet he was raised from the dead? Get out of here, right? They call Paul a seed picker, like a, uh, a country bumpkin. You're an ig- Paul, get out of here. But you know what it says? The most remarkable thing about that whole thing is that it says, yet yeah, some believed. Some believed. How can you explain that? It wasn't because Paul was, was trained in rhetoric or he had some kind of fancy new philosophy. No, no. He was doing the opposite, right? He told them the most unbelievable, literally unbelievable, like not capable of believing this kind of, this kind of story, and yet some believed. That's a miracle. That's what Christ is declaring here, okay? Parables are meant to convey information which challenge the audience to think through the significance of it and to respond in it in a certain way. So when Christ is telling these, these parables... Look what happens. Okay, so are the parables, and we're going to see this as we go through this um, the next few weeks, okay? Some of the parables are difficult to understand, and yet some of the parables are quite obvious. And so I'll give you one that's quite obvious, and it leads to Christ's crucifixion. At the very end of Mark, Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is a parable about, this is Mark chapter 12, 1 through 12, about vine growers. So Christ is telling them about a man who plants a vineyard, he puts a wall around it, he digs a vat for a wine press, builds a tower, and then he goes, right, and leaves. But then he sends a slave to the vine grower to receive some of the produce, they beat him. They send him back. Then Christ is telling the story, he sends another slave, they wound him in the head, and they send him back. On and on, right? And then the vine grower says, you know what, I'm going to send my son, maybe they'll treat my son with respect. So they send the son to the vine growers. What do they do? They kill him. And so at the very end of this, Christ gives this this scripture. He says, have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. They recognize that he's talking about himself, and they've rejected him and the prophets who've come before him. And so in verse 12, it says, and they were seeking to seize him, to kill him. They were seeking to seize him so that they could kill him. So they know very clearly what he's saying, but they don't respond in the right way. So a lot of times these parables, like in Luke's, uh, um, Luke 14, where it talks about Christ saying, unless you hate your father and your mother and your life, you can't be my disciple. What's he talking about? We know he's not saying that you have to, you have to literally hate people because Christ tells us to respect our parents to deny ourselves, right? So what's he saying? He's, this is a parable saying, unless the love you have for me is not in comparison um, to everything else, like hatred for everything else, then you're not worthy to be my, my disciple. These things are obvious. They're clear. But what's difficult is the demand that they place on our life. That's what's difficult. Okay? So some are difficult, some are not so difficult. But the point is, is that parables divide people. Parables divide people. They're divisive. Okay, now, remember John chapter 6, one other one. John chapter 6, is, and perhaps I'm sure there were a lot of the disciples who are hearing this right now. Christ explained this parable. John chapter 6 begins by Christ having a lot of disciples with him. 
They're all following Him. Christ gives people bread to eat, all these things. And then Christ starts talking about how He's the bread of life. And that He says... uh, Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Okay, this would be hard to hear. If you're a a conservative Jew and you love Abraham and you love the Torah and now you're hearing this man who's saying, you know what? You know the manna that came down over here in the Torah? That was meant to reflect me. That was pointing to me. And they ate it and they died. But if you eat my flesh, you'll never die. You know what happens when they hear that? It says they, for them, for the disciples. Look at verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Why? They couldn't handle it. They said, this guy, is, this guy really is a lunatic. We should have listened to Mary and, and his brothers, man. This guy's out of his mind. They leave, but look what happens next. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Or do you? Depending on how you read that. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That word know is God has revealed these things. Knowledge. God has given us insight into who you are. Why would we leave? You're the only hope we have. Why do they know that? Because God has granted them that. God has given them to that, given them that. Okay. Now, verse 12 of chapter 4. And this is the part that's so difficult for, for I mean, everybody, I guess, in a sense. Okay, look at verse 12. So Christ gives, gives this phrase. This is from Isaiah chapter um, Well, let me look at it. This Isaiah, so look what happens, okay? Verse, this Isaiah 6, verse 9, but it's mentioned six times in the New Testament. This phrase right here is mentioned by Paul, and it's mentioned in Acts by Luke, something that Paul says, okay? So it's not just Christ. So in other words, there's a, there's a reason they use this, but look at verse 12. It says, so that. Why does God give these parables? So that. While seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. So this is an answer to the question of what is going on with these people who are not getting it. When we go and tell them, when we go and share with them the gospel, why don't they get it? Christ is telling us why they don't get it. Now, this is the part that's difficult for us to understand because we want an explanation as far as, well, how come God's not saving everybody? We want to know, right? God doesn't give us that. And we have, to, we have to just rest in that. Now, it doesn't mean, um, and I, actually I'll say this in a minute, it doesn't mean that everyone who's lost now is going to remain lost. But as it stands, there is a teleological purpose. That means there's a goal, there's an aim through which everything in our lives, as far as who's saved and who's not saved, everything has a goal, has a purpose that's being directed by the sovereign God of the universe. So let me read this part out of Acts chapter 28. This is, this is Paul, this is the last chapter in Acts. And Paul says this, in Acts chapter 28, because the same thing. So Paul is in jail right now in Rome and people, these Jews are coming to him and they're trying to, they're hearing verse 23. It says, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. That's great, right? He's in this, I mean, who knows what it looks like, a dungeon or something. I guess you can still go to Rome and see where he is in prison. 
But he's in there and people are coming to him and he's telling them from morning until night about Christ. Using the Old Testament, because these are Jews. But it says, verse 24, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father saying, now notice this, says the same thing that Christ says, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, etc., and it goes all the way to the end. Okay? So you're seeing that this is not unique just for Christ, but there must have been this aspect in the Christian culture, the Christian community, the Christian teachings of the time to recognize there is a hardening or something that's taking place to those who are not seeing the things and believe, or who are seeing the things and yet not believing. There's a reason why they don't believe. What's the reason? We leave it with God. We can't answer that. That's that's what we have. But Christ himself is telling us part of the purpose of the parable is exactly that. To demonstrate that the reaction of people who hear the parable and they respond in a way that Christ does not call them to respond to, that's indicative of the fact that they, at least right now, are people who are blinded. Not blind only, but blinded. Okay, they have been blinded. Now, and again, this is throughout Scripture. If we had all day, we wouldn't have enough time even. It would take a long time to go through all the Scriptures demonstrating this. I remember the first time my brother read the Old Testament, and he got through with the Old Testament, and he called me up. And my brother's not a reader. Some of you guys brought, you guys, I think some of you guys know my brother. Anyways, so first time he reads through the Old Testament, he calls me up. And he read through it in like a month. I mean, he blasted through it. And, and again, he's not a reader. He was reading it like six hours a day. And he calls me up, and he goes, man... How is it that not, if he goes, when I read the Old Testament and when everyone reads the Old Testament, he says, how is it that they're not Calvinists by reading the Old Testament? And then you get the New Testament and it's like, come on, you know, <laughs> it's even more clear, more blatant. So, and this guy, and he, I don't even know if he was a Calvinist at the time, but he, he was understanding the term. But anyways, um, that just means in his expression, what he was talking about is that God is sovereign in salvation. The idea of predestination, the idea of election, it's in the Bible. And just a reading through it and taking it at face value is going to give you a very obvious picture that God is God and He's sovereign when it comes to people and how they're saved and who is saved. And we leave it to Him. And by doing so, though, He gets all the credit for every salvation. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Okay, I want to end with this, though. Some who are outsiders will become insiders. Okay. So those who are in the group right now with Jesus, a lot of these, as we see, will later turn out to be the people in John 6 who hear these sayings of Jesus, and they say, you know what? I can't take it. I'm out. Judas is in the house right now. Judas is going to be one who looks like he's an insider, and yet he has not been saved. He is not saved. He has not been saved. Remember in 1 John, it tells us that they went out from us because they were never really among us. They are never really part of us. So it's very, um, the, the idea here is, is that in every community, every gathering, every church, every church is going to consist of believers and unbelievers. I mean, we have to admit that, right? Even Baptists are going to look at it and say, yeah, I admit, because, you know, they're going to want every believer or every member to be a believer. But they always admit, rightly so, that, yeah, there's no way I can know that. 
There's no way we can know that, right? So every group of believers is going to consist of a mix. And we're going to see that in some of the parables that Christ tells us. He's going to very clearly demonstrate that it's a mixed community. Um, doesn't mean that you can act however you want. It doesn't mean that, right? But it's to say that, that in, in, uh, over time, your fruit is going to demonstrate that you're not really a believer if you're not a believer. Okay. Here's the thing also, though. Remember the outsiders at this point who will become insiders. So the demoniac in chapter 5, we'll get there, I don't know when, um, but chapter 5, there's a demoniac who's cutting himself and he's crying out and he's certainly tormented. And Christ comes and heals him and he wants to go back with Christ wherever Christ goes. And Christ says, no, no, go back to your family and tell them all the good things that Christ has done for you. And he goes back and he starts telling everybody about what Christ has done for him. So he's on the outside right now when Christ is telling the story. But he has been, he is elect. He is a child of God. At least he will be. Okay, also think of Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle is on the scene somewhere probably in Jerusalem right now, sitting at the feet of, of, uh, of his teacher. And he is not a believer. Nicodemus is not a believer, at least at this point, right? Nicodemus is the guy who goes to Jesus by night, says, Jesus, you know, you're this teacher and we see you do these things, but who are you? And Christ tells him in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. That's Nicodemus. And then at the end, what happens when Christ is crucified? Nicodemus is the one who goes to Pilate um, and says, hey, let's oh, actually, it was Nicodemus who went by night to, to um, help with Jesus's body and to apply uh, balm and ointment and spices to Jesus's body. Clearly, he was a believer. Um, Jesus's siblings—we saw them last week, right? James and John, uh, or excuse me, James and Jude. Two of the guys who wrote the New Testament were probably in the group that went last week thinking Jesus was insane. Eventually, they'll be converted. It says that when Christ was raised from the dead, he explicitly says explicitly he goes to his brother James. And apparently James sees for the first time, maybe, you know, that this is Christ. This is the Messiah. And so, um, but at the same time, again, certain insiders will prove to be outsiders. Let me read one passage to demonstrate this out of Hebrews chapter 10. There's other places too. For sake of time, we'll, we'll read one. But Hebrews chapter 10. Okay, verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Um, and, and actually, if you think, so, so look what it says here. Uh, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, meaning by which he was set apart. He was set apart by the blood of the covenant. He was partakers of the things of the covenant. So when we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper, what do we say? Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not merely signs. Christ spiritually is present in these things. They are means of grace for those who take them by faith or they're means of judgment for those who do not receive them in faith. They're not neutral signs. They're not neutral things. And so whenever this is talking about this, this is talking about apostates, people who, who look like they're in and they're out. Paul talks about how branches have been broken out of the good plant. Others have been grafted in. And then he warns others who have been grafted in, don't be haughty, don't be lifted up because you can be grafted out. Doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. It means that you're a false convert. It means you can apostatize. Right? So, man, how do we know whether or not we're a false convert? Look to Christ. <laughs> look, look to Christ. Cling to Christ, right? If you look into anything else, there's three ways to know. Um, number one, it's by the Word of God and His promises. 
Okay, number two, which is not as good as the first one, and all of these things are kind of iffy, so don't take them, you know, take them with a grain of salt. But number two, the, the scriptures do give us our fruit. It says you're known by your fruit, so you can examine your fruit. Um, and thirdly, you can, you can look to the idea of whether or not you have assurance from the Holy Spirit that you are a child of God. And so again, that last part, because it can be so subjective and experiential and our heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, you know, all of these things you kind of want to watch because, you know, Roman Catholics can have really good works. Mormons can have really good works. My atheist buddy has really good works, right? Doesn't mean you're saved. So in all of these things, the number one guide is the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? The promises about the gospel, the promises about Christ, and are you resting in those promises? That's where you look. So if you're, if you're worried or if you're fearful, just continue to look to Christ for the rest of your life. That's how you know. Continue looking and resting in Christ. Okay, look and rest in Christ. Now, I am going to... Um, actually, no, we'll save that for the Lord's Supper. So... That is a little bit about parables. As we look at these parables more and more, each parable is going to show itself to be a little different than others. So you can't generalize. Generalizing all the parables is a little difficult, but at the same time, there are things to know. Okay, Parables are meant to reveal certain truths about God, about His kingdom. And for those who are on the inside, even though we might not have... 100% clarity. In other words, we will continue to wrestle with these truths that we find in Scripture. And we're called to do that for our minds to be renewed, to grow in things mentally, intellectually about the Scriptures. Okay, At the same time, there will be this idea of of embracing the truths that we hear and know in the Scriptures, that we receive in the Scriptures. Uh, Whereas for unbelievers, there's usually a rejection of that. Even things like election, you know, in a sense. Predestination. These... You know, I'm not saying only Calvinists or, or Reformed folks are saved, but it, it does. It, it is troubling when you read Scripture and you try to you try to do hula hoops with what Scripture is so obviously saying. Um, but I know even in that there is a sense of, of sanctification that can happen. So, all right, let's pray and then we'll we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for these truths, Lord. Help us to be people who are um, given your wisdom more and more. Lord, we need this. We know that it's, it's you are the giver of wisdom. You're the one who, who distills wisdom. And so we pray for more wisdom about the things of your word. And, and Lord, we pray for those who are here in our midst that are, not, that are not believers, God. We pray that you would reveal that to them, that the scales would fall out of their eyes regarding the things of Christ and also regarding their own state. Lord, help us all to grow in the things of Christ. Strengthen us, O oh God. Strengthen us now through the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name, amen.